Welcome to the King of Instruments. I'm Mark Schultz. I'm Bill Stein. Today we are recognizing the great contribution to the art of the organ by none other than the inimitable Virgil Fox. Here he is playing Pomp and Circumstance by Edward Elgar on the 457 rank John Wanamaker organ in Philadelphia.
recorded in 1964, that was Virgil Fox playing Pump and Circumstance by Edward Elgar on the John Wanamaker organ. Born May 3, 1912 in Princeton, Illinois, Virgil Fox began playing the organ for church and at his father's movie theater at the age of 10. From 1926 to 1930, Fox studied with Wilhelm Mittelschult in Chicago and later in Paris with Louis Vierne and Marcel Dupre. Blessed with a prodigious technique, Fox always played with great energy and drive. Here is a 1970 live recording of Virgil Fox playing Mittelschulte's Perpetuum Mobile for pedal solo. From the 1970 MCA Classics release, Bach Live at Fillmore East. That was Virgil Fox playing Wilhelm Mittelschulte's Perpetuum Mobile on his Rogers traveling organ. Fox's style, in particular his taste for fast tempos, intricate registrations, and a willingness to indulge in sentimentality, was in sharp contrast to that of his contemporaries, such as E. Power Biggs. The defenders of the traditional ways were vocal in their critique of Fox's performances. None other than William F. Buckley, for example, was reported by the New York Times as saying Fox, quote, must have figured that it was more important to fill the house with listeners who would hear Bach for the first time than worry about those who would resolve, like me, to have heard Fox for the last time, unquote. Virgil Fox, however, was undeterred playing to packed houses of clapping, cheering crowds, many of whom had never been to a classical concert before. Here's another 1970 live recording of Virgil Fox introducing, then playing, Bach's Fugue à la Gigue, The Crowd is Electrified. Pay particular attention to the first entrance of the feud subject in the pedal, 
there's cheering and clapping. You're listening to The King of Instruments on Classic 107.3. Whether one subscribes to the interpretation is peripheral. What is important to recognize is the enthusiasm and excitement of the several thousand people in that auditorium cheering and clapping for the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, swept up in a moment of utter jubilation listening to organ music. Mm-hmm. Another way in which Virgil Fox was unlike many of his contemporaries is that he was an advocate for playing transcriptions. Here is Fox addressing the question of transcribing orchestral and even piano music for the organ. People have been known to ask, why do you play some music that is not written originally for the organ? And I give them a very simple, straightforward answer, because it is beautiful. Actually, 
With the advent of César Franck and the French school and the great organ builder Cavier Call, symphonic proportions were added to, given to, made possible for the organ. The organs of Bach's time would not dream of playing Claire de Lune or Tristan. And of course, there is always the possibility of two sides of the story. But since there are superlative organs that have been built around this earth that can play anything that is beautiful, I have never been able to resist playing some of these greatest compositions not composed for the organ. Here is a colorful performance by Fox of Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune on the Aeolian Skinner organ that he knew so very well at the Riverside Church in New York City.
recorded in 1979 at the Riverside Church in New York City. That was Virgil Fox playing Claire de Lune by Claude Debussy. So who are the torchbearers of the Fox legacy? One would certainly need to include Carlo Curley on that list. Curley developed his performance style in the manner of Virgil Fox with respect to popularizing classical organ music to a wider audience, which included his arrangements and transcriptions of pieces from other classical genres. Here is Carlo Curley in a live performance playing March Militaire by Camille Saint-Saëns on the 124-rank Harrison and Harrison organ at the Royal Albert Hall in London.
That was Carlo Curley at the Royal Albert Hall in London playing Marche Militaire by Camille Saint-Saëns. Certainly another stellar member of the Fox Legacy Society would be Cameron Carpenter, here playing an electrifying rendition of Leonard Bernstein's Overture from Candide. The organ is Carpenter's international touring organ, specifically designed for him in 2014 by Marshall and Ogletree.
An incredible performance by organist Cameron Carpenter of Leonard Bernstein's Candied Overture. Thanks for listening to The King of Instruments. Complete information about everything we've played today can be found on our website, kingofinstruments.show. Hi, I'm Brent Johnson, and back continuing our series about concert halls in America. And we left off in 1929, when the age of great concert halls and their pipe organs in America came to a screeching halt. The stock market crash meant that luxuries like concert halls and their organs were out of the question, and many people couldn't afford to attend concerts anyway. While some escaped to cheap movies when they could, the talking picture had supplanted the need for live musical accompaniment, and theaters began to turn off their pipe organs, or remove them entirely. Probably the only public space to hear the sound of a new instrument was Boardwalk Hall in Atlantic City, and that's only because the funding for this instrument had been secured and designated before the Depression hit. This monstrous instrument, the largest ever built, was designed to fill the 5.5 million cubic feet of auditorium space with music. With a total of 33,112 pipes, the organ boasts 10 32-foot ranks and the world's only 64-foot diaphone, one of only two 64-foot stops in the world, this being by far the largest. With wind pressures of up to 100 inches, this organ is a drowsy hangover of the excesses of the 20s that led to the crash. Now, most organ shops at this time had to turn their attention away from the grandeur of big churches and concert halls and worked up designs for small, efficient organs that filled small spaces like funeral homes, which was about the only business that did not see a decline in this era. Even something like the Great Depression couldn't stop progress, however. Starting overseas, organists and organ builders were rediscovering older organs and older methods of building organs. Music of the earlier centuries was starting to reappear from dusty library shelves, and people were rethinking the large-scaled orchestral organ sound that had prevailed in the 19th and early 20th century. Even before the Depression, America had already seen a wave of European organ builders making their way into organ shops on this continent. Even into the 20th century, an idea that Europe still held more artistic sensibilities than this still young country meant that a company who could put some uh, overseas pedigree into their organs got more attention. This was more than just hype, though. Many of these builders did, in fact, have something new to offer. Organ builders such as Richard Whiteleg, G. Donald Harrison, and Henry Vincent Willis were names that often outshined those of the companies that hired them. The 1930s saw some experimentation in organ design in America. While there were very few of what one would call new concert venues constructed in the decade that followed, few of them had pipe organs, and none we talk about much today. There were some churches that continued to grow and installed many landmark pipe organs, and many of these reflected the trends of more classical design with complete choruses, smaller scales, and brighter mixtures. And then, as if things couldn't get worse, the outbreak of World War II meant that difficult times became, if not more difficult, definitely vastly different. Organ builder shops either shuttered or they converted to making products for the war effort. This kept some shops operating, but created a lull in creative opportunities for organ builders to experiment with. Even after the end of the war, builders weren't immediately allowed to go back to business as usual for some time. In concert halls, they were still a distant priority. But as this bleak period at the end of the first half of the 20th century retreated, the country rebounded like nothing ever seen before. Post-war prosperity meant an outbreak of new construction across the continent, and that meant new concert halls and new organs. 
Many of these new halls, however, served to be as efficient as possible. They were often designed to accommodate many different things, from opera and ballet to orchestras and chamber music. And they often didn't do any one thing very well. Putting larger numbers of people into the hall and making the stages as accommodating as possible often meant that acoustics were not the biggest priority. Organs were still important, though. Public interest in the instrument was high, especially as organists were now becoming armed with lots of old music that was new to most ears. The sounds of many of these mid-century instruments were getting brighter and more exciting. Throughout the war years, E. Power Biggs had kept the public entertained with his weekly radio show. He had overseen the design and installation of Aeolian Skinner's attempt to build an appropriately German organ for Harvard University's Germanic Hall in 1937. The radio show allowed him to share these new sounds with the whole country. After playing it for 20 years and following more exposure to historic European organs, however, Biggs decided to have the organ replaced by Dirk Flintrop, a Dutch organ builder. Biggs was a huge proponent of concert hall organs, though, having first gotten involved with the Boston Symphony in the 1930s and helping them design an instrument for their performance space at Tanglewood, and later another Aeolian Skinner for Symphony Hall in Boston to replace the old Hutchings organ. Biggs had many interesting ideas about concert hall organs, including the fact that it only needed one lone 32-foot note, low C, because the main orchestral works like Sasson's Organ Symphony or Strauss's Thus Spake Zarathustra all needed just low C. His renown as a concert organist meant that he consulted on many installations around the country. Despite his sensitivity to things like needing a 32-foot low C, Biggs' ideas about concert hall organs, as well as those of his followers, was not always conducive to organ and orchestra combinations. The bright harmonic choruses that brought Bach's counterpoint to life didn't often play well with the lush harmonies of the string section. These brilliant organs often lack the foundation stops that fill in behind the orchestra and help elevate the music the way composers intended for the organ to do. Add to that acoustics that didn't favor the organ, and well, the reviews were disappointing. Conductors were planning fewer performances that required the organ, new concert halls were being constructed without pipe organs, and audiences were forgetting that grand sound that they used to know. Today's episode of The King of Instruments is sponsored by St. Timothy's Episcopal Church in Creevecore, and of course, Director of Music and Organist at St. Timothy's is our own Mark Schultz. Mark, tell us about the event that's coming up this afternoon at St. Timothy's. Well, we are very excited to be hosting another recital by our very own Leanne Schering. She's a member of our parish and pianist James Barnett. The program is entitled Myth Mirth and Enchantment, Spellbinding Songs for the Spookiest Season. <laughs> Sounds like we're getting ready for Halloween, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. But uh, the, the gig is at 3 o'clock this afternoon, and I think it's going to be pretty fabulous. Wonderful. That's going to be 3 o'clock this evening. That's October 22nd, St. Timothy's Episcopal Church, which is located 808 North Mason Road in Creve Corps. I hope to see you there. Our thanks to St. Timothy's for helping sponsor the King of Instruments and keeping the show on the air. If you're interested in promoting your events and sponsoring an episode of the King of Instruments, well, you can find out more information on our website at kingofinstruments.show or just send an email to koi at kingofinstruments.show. Virgil Fox died of prostate cancer in 1980. In a remembrance published 20 years after his death, the New York Times said of him, quote, Fox could play the pipe organ like nobody's business. But that is not all that made him unforgettable to so many people across the country. 
He made classical organ music appeal even to audiences that normally wouldn't be expected to sit still for it. Perhaps Virgil Fox's most famous transcription is the one he devised for the massive John Wanamaker organ in Philadelphia, Johann Sebastian Bach's Come Sweet Death. This is a very early restored recording from a 1940 radio broadcast.
Does Fox luxuriate a bit in that performance? Perhaps. But it's undeniable that he sensed the deep spirituality in each and every note. And no doubt, there were more than a few moist eyes when that was played. You're listening to The King of Instruments on Classic 107.3. Perhaps the most important member of the Fox Legacy Society would be his successor at the Riverside Church, Frederick Swan, who later went on to be the longtime organist at the Crystal Cathedral in California, where there is a large instrument much influenced by Virgil Fox. The pastor there, Robert Schuler, once commented that the Crystal Cathedral was the only place in the world where one could hear an organ designed by a fox and played by a swan. Here is Fred Swan playing the Riverside Church organ at a Virgil Fox Memorial concert in 2000. The music is Siegfried Kargelert's Fugue on a Credo Theme.
Thank you for joining us today for this program celebrating the legacy of Virgil Fox. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Perhaps you have comments, questions, or even some ideas for future episodes of The King of Instruments. You can write to us at koi at kingofinstruments.show. We'd love to hear from you. To conclude this episode, we return with Virgil Fox to his instrument at the Riverside Church. Here is a virtuoso performance of the Toccata from the Suite Opus 5 by Maurice Durifley. We do hope that you'll join us again next week for Halloween hijinks. Until then, I'm Bill Stein. And I'm Mark Schultz. Thanks for listening.
Thanks for listening to The King of Instruments. Complete information about everything we've played today can be found on our website, kingofinstruments.show. Have comments or questions? You can send an email to koi at kingofinstruments.show. The King of Instruments is a production of the Organ Media Foundation, Brent Johnson Producer. For more information about us, visit our website at organ.media.